Well, how are things going today for you? Oh, you weren't together on that. Let's try it again. You know, uh, I've had several of the, uh, the children ask me that today, several of the adults. Also, this goes with the series that we have been doing out of the book of Esther, talking about the providence of God. So, let's try that again. How's everything going for you today? Everything is going according to plan. Really? Now, listening to and just imagining some of you parents sitting there watching your children and doing this, oh my, are you sure everything is going according to plan? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, does it? Whatever has been going on in your own life this past week or this past month or this past year, and that's why one of the reasons why we've been studying out of the book of Esther, we've been discovering lessons, I think vital lessons, about God's providence, how He orders things in His universe. One of the things that we have said is that we are not talking about fatalism. We're talking about how God masterfully weaves His plan and His purposes together with our choices to accomplish His purposes. And if you remember back, for those of you who have been here, if you haven't been here, this is a very, very brief review. We started out being introduced to Esther, a young lady that depending on how you're going to look at it and interpret, particularly chapter 2 of Esther, she was either an unwilling victim, and some of us have been in that particular scenario, or she was an assimilated compromiser. And I would say the majority of us have been there. But what we've seen in the last couple of chapters and the last couple of sermons is that there has been this marvelous thing that, is, that has taken us through Queen Esther and her growth in understanding, and particularly a couple of weeks ago when she came to a defining moment. It, let me just go back and say this again. When we look at God's providence, don't ever minimize the importance of her choices and her act of obedience to God's plan. And then let me apply that. Don't ever miss the importance of your own choices and your own obedience to what God has given you. Was her struggle with fear very real? We saw this two weeks ago. Absolutely. Death was Death was only 11 months away. That was for the whole. And this was not just an accident. She knew she had to take a stand. With that as the introduction, and we'll read the passage of Scripture. I invite you to turn to, to Esther chapter 5. And we'll be reading as we go through the points on this outline. Um, and let's just pray that God would open our hearts and our minds to receive what we need to.
from God's Word today. Father, I thank you for what you are doing in the lives of your people. I have absolutely no idea what each person has brought into this place, but you do. And we believe that we serve the God who works all things according to the counsel of your will. And yet you give us this incredible thing called freedom of choice. And you weave that together to accomplish your purposes, O oh God. And Father, my prayer is that today that not one person here would, would believe that they are here by accident. They are here by divine providence. And Lord, I pray that now we will see as we unfold this incredible chapter of how Esther moves from internally deciding that she must do something to taking a stand and making a choice. Thank you, Lord, that we get to see her endowed with wisdom and discretion and how she approached the king and a variety of other things. So, Lord, help us as we study. And this is our prayer in the name of our Savior, even Jesus. Amen. Well, let's jump right in. You see it on your outline. We're going to go through several movements of this chapter. That's what we've been doing along the way. So we start, and the title of this first part is called Mission Impossible. You got to see this. This was an impossible mission. And then I've subtitled this first part in chapter uh, 5 and verse 1, a gutsy resolve carried through. Let me just read this to you. You follow along in your Bible or on your smart device, whatever you're using. It's important that we see the Word of God and then we'll comment on it. Verse 1, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Folks, you've got to see this. Esther was willing to take a stand if you read this casually, and if you've read this before, you may not see the incredible combination of boldness and at the same time humility. Now, some of you may not realize, but last week or two weeks ago we talked about this. If you'll jump back into chapter 4, it's just right up from where you are in chapter 5, verse 1. And if you look at chapter 16, you're going to see something very important. And it was important to her. She was willing to break the law of the land. Now, let's stop there. That was man's law. Do you see it there in verse 16? I will go into the king, though it is against the law. This wasn't God's law. This was man's law. But she was willing to defy man's law to do what needed to be done. In my research, I've come across, and there's really a lot 
of archaeological evidence for this time period, and if you will look it up, you'll find the same thing. There are bas reliefs, these, these carvings, incredible carvings, that have been found, and they depict King Darius and King Xerxes on the throne. And they also depict behind him his, his counselors, one of them probably depicts Nehemiah as a cupbearer, but there are also guards there holding spears, and one of them is holding an axe because the law of the Medes and the Persians was this, that if you entered into the king's presence without being summoned by the king, it was immediate death. They didn't just sentence you. And then you went out. There's a reason why that guard had an axe. It was immediate beheading. Unless the king showed grace and mercy and extended his scepter to you so that you would survive. The reason I say this is that you've got to, to, to get a picture of what might have been going on in Esther's mind. I'm afraid sometimes we read the Word of God and we don't realize that those were real people. and They were in real life circumstances and just like you or, or, or I might be put into a circumstance where it, it is frightening. Our heart starts beating more quickly. Things are racing through our minds. In her mind, get this, in her mind, she was seeking to save the lives of her fellow Jews or die trying. She fully believed that there was a great probability. You can go back into the last chapter and see this because remember that it had been a long time before the king, since the king had invited Esther to come into his presence. She said these great words, if I perish, I perish. That's not some cute little saying. She really believed that there was a possibility, no, a probability that she was going to die. Now, let me me just stop and say this. I, I I was thinking of this this last week. Do you and I have that same kind of mentality as we are living our lives, our Christian lives, out there in the real world, not where we're protected somewhat in the four walls of a church, but when we're living our lives, do we have the attitude of, if I perish, I perish? There was a young lady in Mississippi, a third grader, nine years old. And during COVID, she, she wanted to somehow take a stand for the Lord. She was, she was a believer. Her parents supported her on this. And so when masks were mandatory in school, she wore a mask that said, Jesus loves me. Other children wore masks, no one with a mask like that. They had athletic teams emblazoned on the mask, or they had political statements sometimes emblazoned on the mask. 
No big deal was made, no disruption was caused, but the principal walked by the classroom, looked in, and saw, her name was Lydia, saw Lydia with her mask that said, Jesus loves me, called her into the office and said, you cannot wear that mask. She went home heartbroken and confused, and her parents called the school board. Well, we do not allow that, but other children have been wearing other statements. We don't allow political or religious statements. By the way, the school board actually went back, changed their own policy to support what the principal was saying. Now, I will tell you this, that there is a lawsuit going on, ongoing right now, to allow that child and other children to make a statement of her faith. But the real key is, now, now let's go back to Esther. If I perish, I perish. I don't think that nine-year-old little girl had that kind of attitude. But what I'm sharing with you is, do you and I have the kind of man, mindset that I'm going to live for Jesus, and if I perish, I perish. Oh, by the way, are you going to perish? Uh, that's a trick question. Esther was going to die at some point. Let me let you in on a secret in case you, you somehow you've missed this. You are going to die someday. But if you are a follower of Christ, then Jesus' promise to you is that you, even when you die, barring the return of the Lord Jesus, even when you die, you will not perish. It's, it's a done deal. Do you remember the story right at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he's talking with Peter and John, and he has this conversation talking to Peter about a particular thing that's going to happen, and then the explanation is given. I, I find this so encouraging, and a lot of Christians have missed this. He said that to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Now, I've shared this with you before. Some of you, maybe this is the first time you've been here. But again, we're all going to die. About that, there is no question. The only question is, will you look forward to whatever it is? I'm talking to Christians here, obviously. And say, Lord, when that time comes, no matter how it comes, please let me glorify you. And you say, well, that's crazy. No, it's really not. Because as a believer in Christ, you can have this hope, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And by the way, that's not just for you. I, I was thinking as I was preparing that this week, that there are some of you who have walked through the valley of the shadow of death with a loved one. You've been in that valley. And you know what you, you, you can have as a promise? You don't have to fear evil because Jesus said, I'm going to be with you. And then you jump to the, the writer of Hebrews, and he said this in Hebrews 13, 5, 
I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And so, this is all we really need to worry about. Now, that's an application. It doesn't say anything about Esther doing all of that. But we jump from Esther and that statement, if I perish, I perish, to the way that we live out our lives every day. In one sense, she had already died. Have you ever noticed something about dead people? Dead people can't die. Dead people can't be afraid. Now, you overlay that onto the way that we live our Christian lives today. In a sense, if you really understand what you've been called to as a follower of Christ, you and I have already died. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, the instrument of death, and follow me. Sometimes we will, like Esther, even in defiance of the law of the land, now make sure you're led by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. But in defiance of man's law, we will understand that we have an, a higher authority, a higher obligation to a higher throne. And even if we perish, we perish. So that was her attitude going into it. She went into the king. So what's going to happen? Let's look at the next part of it. Here is, here, here is how I've titled that in a lot of words, humility, discretion, and the moving of a king's heart. Listen for those things as we work through this. Well, there's a lot of application. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, now stop right there. We're, we're going to come back to this in just a minute. I've got to. But Esther, if you remember from chapter 2, was a beautiful woman. Described in two ways, beautiful of form, beautiful of face. The king was attracted to her physically, there's no doubt about that. That's one of the reasons most likely she became queen. But here there's a little bit different wording here. Look at it again. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the, Esther, uh, of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. As leaders often do, that was an overstatement. But he was just basically saying, I will bend over backwards to grant your request. And Esther said, now this is discretion and wisdom in action. Watch this. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared, past tense, for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. 
She won favor in his sight. She had her royal robes on, I know that. And she was beautiful of form and of face, I know that. But there's no indication of that. I think that this passage is indicating something else. And let me say this to, to everybody, but particularly to the young ladies of this congregation. The way you look was designed by God. And there is in every culture, I've tried to find pictures, but in every culture, there is a subjective kind of outward beauty. The old saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It is very true because in different generations, different kind of cultures, beauty was something that was different. But just remember this, that God never values outward beauty as much as we do. He doesn't devalue it. There are several women in the Bible that are noted for their outward beauty. But what is, young ladies, older ladies, men, what is God looking for? How well you can look as you look into the mirror? Because I can tell you something, as you get older and you look into a mirror, you better take your glasses off. <laughs> oh my I don't even have to look in the mirror. I can just see some of you. <laughs> God moved the king's heart to see something that as a pagan, he's not a Christian, he's not a follower of Christ, he's not one of the covenant people. But he moved the king's heart to see something in Esther. It was precious, that was valuable. Ladies, this should put this on your mirror. It's one of those great proverbs. Some of you had no idea that this is actually in the Bible. Like a gold ring, something to be valued, something beautiful. There's an incongruity here in, in this proverb. Like a gold ring in a pig snout. It just doesn't go together unless it's a razorback. Not, no. <laughs> a gold ring and a pig's snout. They use their snout for digging in the mud and the slop. A gold ring and a pig's snout, it just doesn't go together. So is a beautiful woman physically without discretion. I just think the king saw something there that we jump to the New Testament. And I'm amazed how that one passage of Scripture in the New Testament can go all the way back to a proverb or to a setting like this and become a commentary. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4, that's a commentary on this passage in Esther. 
and going back to the proverb. And he's speaking to the women primarily because I think women are given to this more than men, not that men aren't. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's eyes, in the king's eyes, is very precious. Clothe yourselves. Now, by the way, so that this is not just for a young lady kind of thing, all of us clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in this passage, we see for a third time, Esther is said to have won favor. Now, I slowed down when we read that verse 3. It should be obvious in that verse, the king, can, can, he can read Esther's heart. He says, what is it, Queen Esther? What's, what's troubling you? What, what is your request? He knew something was up. Now, watch her answer. And this, this is something that I need as a lesson. I I dare say that all of us need this. Why did Esther answer the way she did? What was her goal? What was her goal? To save her people from annihilation. But what was her answer? Why did, why did she answer the way she did? Well, I'm giving a banquet. I've already prepared it. And would you and Haman come to it? Did she lose her nerve? Was she playing it safe? I see a wise and well thought out response because, and, and, and again, I pointed it out so you didn't miss it, she's already prepared the banquet. She was, listen, she was intentional without being impulsive. Uh, see, you're looking at me. You might want to write that down. It's easy to be impulsive when we see a need, and it's a great need. Whether it's with our children, our grandchildren, our spouse, friends. If Esther were being impulsive like I have been impulsive sometimes, she would have said, King Xerxes, you need to change the law. That was a stupid law. You need to save the Jews. Queen Vashti, in the first chapter, was impulsive. It cost her her throne. It didn't enhance her hearing to the king. Fools rush in. This is not a biblical statement, by the way. <laughs> but it's true. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. But the psalmist says it like this. Fool gives full vent to his spirit. Boom, impulsiveness. But a wise man quietly holds it back. We have the word, listen, we have the word that guides us. But we have the Holy Spirit who applies that word to every situation. And not every situation is going to look exactly 
like the other. There is a time to step in and speak, and there is a time to wisely seal your lips and wait for the opportune moment. I, I see this a lot like fly fishing. Got some fly fishermen in here. And if your goal is to catch a fish, first thing you have to do is you have to know what the fish is going to be eating. There are ways you can do that. But you select a fly, and then, the right fly, by the way, then hopefully you will hook the fish. When I first started fly fishing, I didn't catch many fish. I could hook them. But there is an art, and I believe this is what Esther was doing. There is an art to playing the fish to the net. She was intentional. She was not impulsive. And part of the intentionality doesn't show up until subsequent chapters. Part of the intentionality was to make sure that Haman comes along to the dinner. As one of our third graders said the other night about something else, it was a well-woven plan. Third thing, let's move on. Let's see the royal dinner and a subtle setup. By the way, she was not being, uh, there might be a question, was she using that, that fishing illustration? Kind of an un ungodly thing going on? No, 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 she was being wise. She was using discretion. Now look at the last part of verse 5 on through verse 8. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. This was not a big banquet. This was the three of them, very intimate. And as they were drinking wine at the feast, I think it's referring mainly to Haman and Xerxes, the king. The king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Again, she shows discretion. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. The second invitation, why? Uh, the... The text doesn't say, but I, let, me, let me put forward two things that I, that I see, and I, these are just suggestions, okay? Applications. The first thing is Haman's response in the next section. We're going to hear that. I, I think this is part of the setup, the subtle setup for Haman just to the old saying is, you give a person enough rope. I, I think this is part of what is happening. And we're going to see a man, Haman, so blind in his unbelievable 
unfettered pride and murderous hatred. We're going to see that particularly in the next section that this next banquet is effectually going to seal his doom. And God's going to carry out what he always promises to carry out. One, one's pride will bring him low. Or in Haman's case, high, as we'll see later, in a sense. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. God is just. He will not let the unrighteous go unpunished, but God is merciful. For all who repent and turn to him. So, number one, I, I really believe that we're seeing a picture of God letting Haman spell out his own doom. Okay? But I see something else. Why wait? Why wait? I see this further delay, and, and again, I, I, this is what I personally see as a part of God's mercy to give Haman another opportunity to repent. Don't we see that all through Scripture? Genesis chapter 15, that's not what's up here, but, but Genesis 15, when, when Abraham is being called by God and, 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 and God is cutting the covenant with, with Abraham and he tells him that, that the Jews, your, your seed is going to go into captivity into Egypt. And in the fourth generation, they're going to return back here. Why so long? He says it, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. God was giving those pagan nations time to repent. And I believe that in his mercy, he was giving Haman another opportunity to repent. Remember, God is not slow to fulfill his promises of judgment and of mercy. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Are there evil leaders in our world? Have you ever found yourself like I have, praying for the instant demise of one of those leaders? or else that he get kicked out of office or one thing or another? I have. Pray. Pray for God's mercy. At least God will take care of it in his time. Last section. Here's what it's about. I'll read this, and then we'll make a few comments. Um. For some of us, go enjoy a Christmas feast. Uh, that's our life adults having about 100 of us are going to be eating lunch together in just a few minutes. Uh, pride, discontent, hatred, and a murderous plot. Wow, that's a lot. Well, just listen to it. 
verses 9 through 14. And Haman, now look, look, look at this. This is such a study. If Esther in the first part is a case study in, in growth, the growth of a believer from a, a, an assimilated compromiser to somebody who takes a stand and acts on it, then Haman is a case study in what not to do and several other people fit into that category too. So read through this, just listen. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Why? Because he had gotten what he wanted. He just got recognized. He really had a fragile ego. But when Haman, watch this, saw Mordecai, now that's, in case you haven't been here, that's Esther's cousin who had adopted her because she was an orphan. And he was a leader, but he was not the prime minister like Haman was. When Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose before him, paid him homage, or trembled. Basically, what, what Mordecai was communicating was, I'm not going to bow down to you, and I ain't afraid of you. Now, he may not have been as surly as what I just said it, but I don't, I don't know that he wasn't. He was filled with wrath. Isn't it amazing how you can go from joy to wrath in a second? What will normally take you from joy to wrath in that quickly? Whenever your idols are threatened. And that's exactly what happened. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, went home. That was part of the plan. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Haman recounted to them, watch this, this is, again, unfettered pride, recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above officials and the servants of the king. And Haman said, verse 12, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow I am also invited by her uh, together with the, the king. Yet, yet, all of this, do you see all of his idolatry? How many times does he use the personal pronoun? I, me, mine. Yet, all that I have, everything that I idolize is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Oh, I wish I didn't have to read this next verse. Talk about sealing fate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows. Now, if you look in your if you're using a Bible, a paper Bible, it'll probably give a cross-reference. The, the literal word is stake, S-T-A-K-E, stake, a sharpened pole, okay? That was typically how they executed people in that day in Persia. They would impale them on a stake. Whether it's a gallows or a stake, let a gallows stake 50 cubits high be made, 75 feet and in the morning, tell king, the king, tell the king, <laughs> boy, he's puffing himself up, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it, and then go joyfully after you've committed murder 
with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. I don't even know where to start in this. The first thing is humility. I love the definition of humility from Romans 12, 3. We could all apply it. Esther, Haman, you, me. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Do you think Haman fell into that? Okay. The next part of it is think with sober judgment. As God has given you, allotted to you a measure of faith. There are two extremes that, that are not humility. The first is to puff yourself up. Think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. The other one is to think more lowly of yourself than you ought to think. Think with sober judgment. God has gifted you. You're not an accident. He's brought you into this place at this time for a purpose. And to say less, I believe, is as much pride as the other end. He thought too highly of himself. I said he's got a fragile ego. Yeah, I, I just pointed it out in verse 9 and then verse 13. In his idolatry, it, isn't it amazing again? You can be happy about everything, and one thing, one thing can stick in your craw. This one thing was a guy named Mordecai in his life that would not bow down to him and would not tremble with fear, because after all, he was the perpetrator of the edict that was going to kill all of the Jews. And, and Mordecai said, I'm not having any of it, and it just drove him crazy. What, I, I, I just see such an application for me, for you, we, we can have so much. And one thing, one thing can make it all seem like we don't have anything and we become discontent. You know what? Idols, idols are signs of our independence from God. Now, he was already independent from God. And there might be some people, I, I read this, and, and I realized last week there might be some people who say, well, I can't relate to Haman. He was a wicked, wicked, sinful man. I can relate to Haman. I can, I, I can leave after a day of worship, and I, my heart is full of joy in being with God's people and preaching the Word and, and singing the Word and saying the Word and interacting in my ABF class with other believers who love Jesus, and somebody can cut me off. I've got everything, and if I don't have the respect of that one person who cuts me off in traffic, I can fly into a rage. And that's just one example. Am I the only one? No. We have so much, and yet, what's again? I, I love this. I didn't get it in the notes, uh, in the uh, outline, but I love this perspective from the Puritans. This is a good perspective on humility. They said, Our father is Adam, our grandfather is dust, our great grandfather was nothing. 
Okay, that didn't land. You're going to have to think about that. Okay. Unfortunately, now this last, I, I said verse 14. Okay. He couldn't get what he wanted, so what happened? His wife and the friends came along with some terrible, terrible advice. Was she a woman of discretion or impulse? I see other women in the Bible like that. Hey, Adam, you and I can be like God. Just eat, just, just take a bite. Bad advice, impulsive advice. Sarah to Abraham, we're, not, we're, we're never going to have kids. Take Hagar. Play, take Hagar. Bad advice. Really bad advice. Jezebel to Ahab, you're the king. If you want Naboth's vineyard, kill him. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Bad advice. And you got to see that, that pole, her, it was her idea to build a gallows 75 or a stake 75 feet tall. In other words, don't just kill him, make a statement of what's going to happen down the road to the rest of the Jews. Wives, I say this gently, be careful of giving your husband bad advice, impulsive advice. This is, this is not a sermon on marriage relationships. But I think that there is something here that the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear. Paul said it like this, husbands, love and lead your wives in your home. Wives, line up with your husbands. It means always give them biblical counsel so that they will not seal their own doom and you won't be part and parcel of helping that happen because now when you get out of here, you can go back and read the rest of the story and see how this came back, not just on Haman. It came back on her as well. Again, a commentary on this passage of Scripture. Proverbs 26, though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Ultimately, the story of Esther is not about a poor orphan girl who makes good, wins a beauty pageant, becomes queen, saves a people. It is that story. The Jews celebrate it, as we reminded you several weeks ago at the Feast of Purim every year. But the Jews stop short 
We know that it points to the one who came and willingly for us put himself on the tree, on the stake, as it were, and took our sins, the worst of them, took the sins, the Haman-like murderous sins, the impulsive sins, the intentional sins, they were put on the cross, put on Jesus on the cross. So that by repenting, turning away from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ, you and I can be delivered as we're God's covenant people. And we can have eternal life. Barring the return of the Lord, everyone in this room is going to die. But not everyone has to perish. Because Jesus came so that all who believe in him may have eternal life and may never perish. Father, I thank you for the the scriptures. I thank you how that we read through stories and somehow miss some of the clear things that, that should jump out. They have at me, at least in terms of personal application. I pray that they would for everyone who's sitting in this room. I pray that you would help each person to see today that, that uh, he or she is not here by accident, but by divine providence. And today, uh, your word has been proclaimed, particularly the word of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that forgiveness in his name can be had by repenting and by believing in him. Oh God, I pray that that would be affected in the lives of those that you would call to yourself even today. And I pray that those of us who know you, that our hearts would be strengthened to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing and will do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.